this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, what's your biggest question when it comes to selling your company? You know, when I ask that question of other entrepreneurs, I hear things like, "How do I avoid an earnout? When's the best time to sell? How do I create a bidding war?" These questions, along with many others, inspired me to write the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. I've taken all the best practices from the 300 plus interviews I've done for this show and distilled them down into an action plan for you. You can get it along with some gifts from my listeners when you go to builttosell.com slash selling. There's a big difference between wanting to sell your company and building a company you could sell. My next guest, Kevin Waldron, did the latter. He started Olympic Restoration, built it up to $24 million in annual sales, and always knew that one day he would sell it. And so, as you'll hear, even from the very earliest days, the initial inception of the company, he was thinking that one day he would sell his company. Here to tell you how he structured it is Kevin Waldron. Kevin Waldron, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, nice to be here, John. Thanks for having me. So when the worst happens to people, they get a flood inside their house and their couch is floating in six inches of water. You at Olympic came in and saved the day. Tell us about this company, Olympic Restoration. Am I getting it right? Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. The name of the company was Olympic. Um, yeah, I was your guy. So when 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 everything hit the fan and it, things got flooded or damaged by fire, um, we were the guys that would come in and do all the emergency services, get everything tricked up, um, and then do all the, all the remodel to put it back together. And, and so how did you win customers? Like, I'm thinking this is not a, a, a recurring revenue model. You only have a flood, hopefully, once. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible moment in your life. Like, how did, you, how did customers find you? It, it was an interesting mix. Um, there's a lot of people have the distinction between customers and clients. Um, for us, we had a dual distinction. So we had customers as a distinction, and then we had client as a distinction. And our clients, the people that, because you're correct, you know, you only have a flood probably one time in your life. Um, so our clients were insurance agencies, um, you know, your insurance agent, insurance adjusters, uh, property managers, hotels, facility managers, the kind of people that would, would bump into that type of stuff with some regularity. Interesting. And so those were whom you, they were effectively your referral sources. That's exact. That's who we marketed to. Yeah. Interesting. And so again, I, I don't, ask this in a in a an accusatory way is it legal to pay a spiff or commission to them or do they have to keep that that separate like are you able uh, no, to pay kind uh, of commissions yeah that's a, it's a great question um there's some shady companies out there that do that you absolutely cannot do that um and we had made the decision very early on that we weren't going to play that game 
um, that we were going to get business just strictly on the, the value of the work that we provided, the result that we delivered. Um, you know, and we did, you know, we did a bunch of marketing stuff. I mean, we took people to ball games and dinners and, you know, horse racing events and stuff like that, you know, taking people on fishing trips, all the stuff that you would do to, to grow your business. Um, but 100% no one paying anybody commissions. Interesting. And so what would your value proposition to an insurance agency be? I'm thinking of these massive conglomerates and I'm assuming they just buy in price. It's interesting because, you know, I sold this company 2005 and I started in 1988. And for probably the first 10 years, it really was people just wanted good service, right? They just wanted you to take care of their customers. You know, I'm an insurance agent, for example. Um, one of my customers calls and said, hey, I've had a flood. Um, you go, hey, you need to call Kevin's company. They'll come right out. They'll take good care of you. And the value proposition for that, for that insurance agent was, we'll come out and we'll take care of your customer when they really need you. You know, because we all pay insurance every month. And most of us kind of halfway resentfully so because we end up never using it. Sure. Um, but when we do need it, that's when we get that little kind of pang of like, all right, I've been paying you for the last 10 years. It's time for you to nut up here and take care of me and make sure I'm handled. So that was the, that was the value proposition for the agents then. And we did not, even although we became a fit, I mean, I became, we were one of the largest independents in the country when I sold. Um, but we didn't, try and negotiate monolithic contracts with giant insurance companies. Um, it was all individuals inside organizations. So it really was a personal one-to-one selling experience. You mentioned that change though, Kevin, what changed? In the beginning, that was the approach, but yes, you said for the first time, so what changed? Um, yeah, the, the biggest thing that changed was the, the healthcare model that existed in insurance, um, which has been in America for the long this time where they basically, you know, they just beat the crap out you on price. They, they, you know, the doctors can't make any money anymore, that type of thing. That, that never existed in the property and casualty world for the longest time. That was the last domino to fall in the insurance world. So then they started putting a bunch of pricing together in databases. And all of a sudden it became, all right, um, you know, we used to pay you $50 for this thing. We're now going to pay you $26.74 for this thing. They're like, well, where did you come up with that? Well, our survey says that it's $26.74, which was total BS. It was just made up. Um, but that, that was the sea change. So that, that was the beginning of the sea change because they took on the healthcare model. Interesting. And so what happened next? I mean, I would imagine your gross margins got pinched. Um, gross margins got pinched. We had to work our way around that. Um, which we kind of did. The biggest effect it had actually was on net margins because at the beginning of that decade, they had these things called, you're familiar with an insurance adjuster, right? So that's the, that's the person that comes out and looks at the loss and tells the customer how much you know, their claim is going to be and how much they're going to pay. Um, up until that sea change started, um, we were left alone just to do our work. But when that sea change happened, they know the insurance companies now expected us to do a lot of the work that the adjusters did. So the taking of the photographs, you know, video on losses, um, writing reports, you know, all kind of stupid stuff that we had to do that we didn't really get, you know, re reimbursed for. 
So actually our net margins started to go down and we started to, you know, we had to make some adjustments to that. Got it. And so give me a sense of what, what like a decent year would have been on a net margin basis, like as a percentage basis on a, on a good year pre this. And then what, like what impact did it have after this, you know, healthcare model became the prevailing way? Yeah. On a, on a good basis. year. Yeah. Good question. On a, on a good year when I was down about 10 million a year and I was strictly, again, product is so key, right? Because there was three pieces to the business. There was the water damage stuff when buildings get flooded. So that's when you go in and you put all kinds of drying equipment in. So it's really, it's a rental business is what it is. Um, you know, you get a guy that comes in and, you know, he'll tear up carpet and tear up drywall, but then you're putting on very expensive drying equipment and you're charging by the day for that. So you might take something like a, a dehumidifier that takes moisture out there. You know, that would rent for anywhere from 100 to 200 bucks a day. We would buy the best equipment service the crap out of it so that it was always in good working order um and the margins on that were through the roof so when 10 million in sales or mar- net margins um pre-tax were probably like 24 25 percent wow and then, and then after and then after <laughs> after it um probably on the water damage went down to like about 16 percent um and on the construction side which ended up becoming the the bigger of the vault, you know, my, my biggest year was 24 million in sales. And out of the 24 million that year, I probably did about 12 million in construction. And that was only done at like a 7% margin, mm-hmm. net margin. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. So you mentioned you had three products, water damage, construction. What was the third? The third one was what we call contents. So that would be when you had a, if you had a fire, in your home, um, the fire doesn't burn the whole home down. It just burns one room, for example, but the smoke goes through the whole house. So you have to pack up the contents of that house, put it in a moving van, and then take it back to our facility where it was all cleaned and processed. And then it was stored there until we could go in and do all the remodel, you know, put new carpets in, do the paint, and then you would move everything back in. So in some respects, that was like a cleaning company and a moving company. So it really was three almost unique companies in one. Inside one company, exactly. Three different you know, disciplines, three different sets of margins, three different sets of skill sets and you know, operations and the kind of people we had to hire, all very different. Yeah, I'd imagine. You know, I think a lot of people listening to this would be familiar with you know, restoration companies that, that come in again and, and, and deal with a situation where there's been a fire or flood or whatever. And most of them are a guy or a gal in a van. Yep. Very small businesses, mm-hmm. um, you know, owner operated, you, you call the guy's cell phone and he shows up with, you know, some fans and, and some, you know, uh, elbow grease and gets the job done. You cross the chasm to use Jeffrey Moore term from a guy in a, or gal in a van to a $24 million business. And I'd love to know how you got from, how you got from, from just doing the work to running a company. Like, it, could you distill it down to one decision or one action you took that got you out of that, just doing the work into running a company? Yeah, it, it was interesting. So just a, a tiny backstory. Um, um, I think t- 
two months before I started my company. So I worked for somebody else. Um, I learned how to do everything. And the guy that I worked for was a complete jerk, um, treated his employees horribly, didn't pay his taxes, um, you know, all, all kinds of shenanigans. So I had what Michael Gerber would call an entrepreneurial seizure, right? <laughs> where you have that thing where you go, all right, I could do better than that. You know, America's a great place. It seems to me if I look around, all you have to do is kind of show up and, you know, you'll beat 99% of the people out there just by showing up. So I decided to take the chance to start. And two, I think two months before I started, I, I went to like a half-day seminar. And he, Michael Gerber was there and he talked about um, if you have to be there every day um, to open the door in the morning and shut the door at night, then you don't have a business, you have a job. Um, and that scared the shit out of me because <laughs> I, I did not want a job. I actually wanted a business. Um, and I was willing to work hard. That, that wasn't an issue. Um, and at the very beginning, too, it was me and one other guy. That was that, right? The, the very first person we hired was, uh, um, like, in, you know, back in the day, you call it a secretary. We had somebody just to answer the telephone. Um, and I paid them a fortune at the time just because I wanted to be a professional company right from the start. I didn't want it to go to an answering machine. I didn't want to go to voicemail. It had to be a live person that would, that would take the calls. So I think right from the jump, I was pretty clear that I wanted to build something um, and, and not just like, you know, be a guy in a truck. What else did you do beyond hiring someone to answer the phones in the early days to make sure you didn't get sucked into doing the work? Yeah, the early days. Um, so obviously I had to do the work in the beginning. I was doing everything, right? Going out, running jobs, doing the bookkeeping, you know, cleaning the windows, sure. taking the trash out at night. Um, but hiring those first, um, it wasn't until we got to five people, I think, where we really became a company. Because um, even when I had a couple of people, I hired a couple of technicians. Um, if even at two people, um, if one of them quits, the other one kind of looks at you and thinks, all right, he quit, so you totally rely on me now. So you really don't own this company. I own you. Hmm. <laughs> so once, once I got to five, which was two technicians and then a supervisor, then the next person I was able to hire was a marketing person. And that's, that's, where we, that's where we began to develop our whole marketing program. A lot of people listening to this are saying, well, that's great, Kevin. I would love to hire a team of five, but mm -hmm. I can't afford it. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm lucky to have one person. I can't, I can't hire five. But for me, you had to do it strategically, right? So very much, um, I don't know where I was. I think I, like, right when I started, I heard that Howard Schultz had, started, had built Starbucks and he told the story of um, how Starbucks didn't make any money for the first 10 years or whatever. And I thought, Christ, I can't, I don't have the luxury of doing that. Like, I, you know, I got rent to pay on Friday. Um, we need to make sure we make money right from the jump, which is what we did. And then in Scotland, there's a really cool thing. When we were growing up, we had what's called Christmas clubs, which is, you know, when you can't afford to buy Christmas presents because you're poor. But every month, it's almost like layaway. You take a certain percentage of your, your, your pay packet um, and you give it back to, to the guy and he holds it for you. And then in December, you can afford to buy Christmas presents. Well, we did the same thing for growing the company. So as we made money, let's say we, we brought in $10,000 from a job. Um, 
we would set a thousand dollars aside to buy new equipment, and then we'd set a thousand dollars aside to be able to contribute to to the next new salary. So we didn't take the money out of the business for the first couple of years because um, we didn't need it. We were young too, right? We, we didn't need to spend a lot of money, um, but you just kept reinvesting it to get it to a certain size. Who's the we? Uh, my wife, Janine, the smart, the smart one. <laughs> That's the other thing. People, you, t- yeah, people, yeah, people tell you don't work with your wife. Um, absolutely not. If she, she was the balance to, you know, I was like the blue sky. I was, I was the worker, but I was also the blue sky guy. Um, she was the one that kept her feet on the ground. The one that said, you know, yeah, we made ten thousand dollars this week or whatever. And she'd go, great. Well, where is it? Oh yeah, I better go and collect it, get it in the bank. That's really interesting. Well, how long did you work with your wife? Um, so my kids were born. So probably um, she started working with me right when we started the company. So she, we probably worked together for about five years full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was what wonderful. Advice, yeah. What advice would you have for someone thinking about going to business with their spouse? Um, know yourself and know your spouse very, very well <laughs> before you do it. Um, and as much as you can, um, leave stuff at the office. So when you're working, you're working, but when you're home, you're home, right? Good advice. Let's switch gears to the final chapter. I think um, you had, you know, the the healthcare model had infiltrated the the insurance adjusting space, and margins were being shrunk or or shrunk. Um, mm-hmm. You reached twenty four million in sales. What triggered you to want to sell? Candidly, at that point, I was done. I'd been doing it for seventeen years. Um, and I was getting tired of getting beat up by the insurance companies. And I was just, I was literally ready to go do something different. I was, I, I was done. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? I think a lot of people listening will say, yeah, yeah. Like I have those days where I'm just like done. I want out. But you kind of wake up in the morning and, and you're back at it. There's usually though a straw that breaks the camel's back. Some sort of triggering event that, that made it from theoretical to real. Yeah. Um, I started my company when I was 26. Um, I sold it when I was 42. I think I just realized that the, the industry itself wasn't going to change. Like the way the insurance companies had become and how tough it was getting and, you know, how everybody was beating you up over margins. It was like, I was just tired of playing that game and didn't think it was ever going to change. Um, and, you know, again, it, it, you know, people say, what is it when politicians get fired? They say, um, well, I'm retiring to spend more time with my family. Um, it's usually bullshit. Um, but in my case, it actually, it, it was, it was like, I, I wanted to go do something different. I was done. How old were your kids at the time? See, four, I was 42. My kids were probably like 10 and 12, somewhere in that. Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, as I built my business, I was fanatical about no matter how mu- much I worked and I worked a lot, um, you can count on one hand the amount of practices or games I'm just watching my kids play sports. So mm-hmm. I, I got to do both. That's a real luxury of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, right. You don't yeah. you don't have to manage your own, you know report to a boss that says you yeah. can't leave. If you three. set it up that way, yeah, 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 yeah. Well said. And you want to talk so, about? Go oh, ahead. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say last chapter. It's like when it when the straw did break the camel's back, and I was like, all right, I'm done. 
I think I would have been screwed if I would have woke up and went, all right, I'm done. I need to now think about selling this company. But the work that I, the relationships that I built up through the years, I knew when I was ready to sell, I knew how I was going to sell to. What do you mean? Um, when I was building my like what I was just thinking about our call coming up this morning, and I thought, all right, well, how, how did I how did I grow Olympic? And I had an absolute blast for probably the first 14 years of running my company. Absolutely loved it. Loved getting up in the morning. Loved the people I worked with. Loved the job that we did, the results that we produced. Um, but every single morning I would wake up and I would think, this one question informed me. And the question was, um, if somebody was going to pay me a boatload of money to buy this company, what would it have to look like? Right. And bear in mind, never with the intention of selling, right? Never, never wanted to sell, having, having a great time. But that's what made me build up the management team. That's me, what's had me do the, the marketing, be institutionalized. Um, and I had a company approach me about when I was probably doing about 10 or 10, 12 million a year. Actually, that, that's a lie, probably six to eight million a year. Um, and wanted to buy me. Sorry, I didn't. Kevin, uh, uh, maybe it was the connection. You said six to eight million? Yes, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm okay. Scottish, so I can't pronounce the number six. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, it's not an X rated show. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> six to eight million, you had someone approach you? So, six to eight million, so, someone approached me and said, you know, we, we'd like to buy you, blah, blah, blah. And at the time I worked with my, I was working with my business coach, and I said, I don't want to talk to these people. I, I don't want to sell. And she said, go through it for the exercise. So even although you don't want to sell, go through the process, see what they have to offer, see what the structure's like, you'll learn something. Um, and that's what I did. I spent two months and I was really upfront when I told you, I don't have any intention of selling, but you know, I'll, I'll listen to what you've got and I'll, I'll hear what your program is. Um, and went through the whole process, super fascinating. And then at the end of it, I said, yep, I told you I wasn't going to sell and, you know, appreciate your offer and I'm, I st I'm still not going to sell. But kept on good terms with them and they ended up being the company that I sold to probably five or six years later. Interesting. At the time, what was their offer? Like, can you share kind of multiple range and structure? Like, was it sort of, we're going to buy a, a chunk of the business and then have you run it for a few years or like an earn out. What sort of structure did they propose? Yeah, no, they wanted to buy the whole thing and they wanted to give me, I think it was like 75% up front with a 25% earnout over two years. So they wanted me to stay on for two years. Um, the multiple at the time, if I remember right, was probably about four times EBITDA. And what was your reaction to that offer? Um, took it back to my coach, looked at it, and it, and it was kind of fascinating. It was like, well, okay, that, that's pretty good. Um, because I think at the time it would probably have been about seven million uh, net with, with more on the internet. Um, but I looked at it and I went, I'm having too good a time running it, and I actually think I can create more value by myself. There's more, there was more to go for me at the moment. So that company was kind of in the back of your mind as you grew? Did, in what way did you keep in touch with them, sort of kindle that, that fire, so to speak? Did you, did you try to keep them abreast of your progress along the way? No, candidly, just being a human being, right? You know, I, I like the CEO. Um, you know, we would see each other at events or whatever or talk once on the phone or whatever. 
she just kept a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you got to this point of burnout, just wanting to go do something else, you'd been in it for 17 years. What did you actually do? Did you, did you market the business to more than one company? Did you go directly to that CEO and say, okay, now's the time? No, I went directly to them. And hindsight probably wasn't, I mean, I could probably have got more money if I'd have been a little more strategic about it. Um, but it just, it seemed like a good fit. They were good people. Um, they were a family-owned company. They had a big franchise, but it was still family-owned and operated. So it wasn't like a big giant corporate behemoth. So they were, they were good people to deal with. I mean, there's a lot of water under the bridge now. Time has gone by. If you had, and I acknowledge the fact that the, the company you chose, you knew you were, you respected them. And at the same time, you've also acknowledged that, that had you sort of shopped the deal, you may have gotten more. If you actually got to rewind the clock and, and go back to that point in time, would you shop it? Or do you uh, think you made the right decision in not shopping it? No. And, you know, for your listeners, the, I mean, here's the unvarnished truth, right? You don't want a guy on this program telling you a bunch of theory or whatever, or, you know, dressing it up. No, absolutely. That was, that was a mistake. I probably should have shopped it. Yeah. So in other words, if I had to rewind, absolutely, I would have shopped it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you go to the, the ultimate buyer and what was that conversation like? Like, what did you, what was the approach that you took to, to initiating that conversation? Um, ridiculously simple. Um, do you still want to buy me? I'd be interested in hearing what you've got to say now. Um, and we got the whole, the whole deal was done. Uh, and we went back and forth and negotiated for probably a week, 10 days. Um, and then we closed within about 45 days. How was the, was the multiple sort of similar to what they were offering the first go around? Yeah, I would say fairly similar. Fairly similar in that space. And, and what about the deal terms? You mentioned the first offer was sort of two-year earnout, 75% up front. Were similar structure? Similar structure. The only difference was um, I did not want to stay on for any time after it. Um, so I let them buy the business. The business they took, obviously took all the employees, and they folded my company into theirs. So they rebranded it almost immediately. Um, so I think you probably saw the press release from back then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they send a big press release saying that you know they've acquired Olympic. Yeah, no, I did. I did see the press release yeah. for sure. Da, 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 da. And then within a year, they folded all our our vans into their branding. Because that was a space that they really wanted to be in for a long time. And rather than try and grow it by themselves, that's why they wanted to buy a company that was already established. What was it like to see your brand go away? Um, I don't know. Um, mixed emotions about it. I'll tell you one of the funnest things was, you know, we, in, the, we, in, the, in the Bay Area, we had five offices in the Bay Area. Um, and it was kind of fun just, you know, I'd be driving down the freeway and on my way to an appointment or whatever, and I'd drive by one of my trucks. And it was the coolest feeling to just look and see one of your trucks driving down the road, right? There's a guy driving it. He has no idea he's beside you. You're beside him. Um, so, yeah, mixed emotions. I mean, happy to let it go and move on to something else because I really was complete with that business. Um, but, yeah, it, it was something beautiful that we built. And I'm a little sad to see it go away sometimes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've heard that that can be for some people difficult, especially if the the family surname is in the company name. Yeah, mine wasn't, and, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. Was that an intentional choice on your part? That was a completely intentional choice. Right, again, right from the jump, if this is going to be a business that somebody's eventually going to buy one day, they didn't want it to be Waldron Restoration. It had to be something else. That's such a unique perspective because for a lot of people, um, you know, they they think it's wrongheaded to build a business to sell. I I, I wrote a book called Built to Sell, so yeah, really, right? I don't think that. <laughs> but I, but I do get from time to time people kind of criticizing me, saying, "Oh, that's you know, that's that's a terrible way to grow a business. That's a money hungry uh, mercenary. You should be building it to last. You should be building your legacy." Uh, you know, clearly, I don't agree with that. But I'd be curious to know from your perspective. Um, what's the question I'm asking? Like, what, I guess, like, what was it that made you want to build to sell from the very beginning? What it, and it, again, the distinction is I didn't want to build it to sell. I, I just knew that it would be useful to build it as if I was going to sell it, right? That was the distinction for me because I thought it would actually build a better company and create more value for, for me, right? Like I, I tried to be a performance-based company right from the start. And to, to your thing about that, that's a really interesting distinction you said about, you know, or, you know, you've been criticized for, you know, is it money hungry to build a business, you know, just to sell or whatever? Well, I think as long as you're providing value, who gives a crap, right? I mean, it's America. You can do whatever you want. Um, and if you're going to build something that wasn't there and it's going to provide value to um, your investors or to the community or your customers, or, you know, you're going to give 200 people a job to come to every week and you know, be able to put food on their table. Um, you know, what the hell's wrong with that? Nothing in my view. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, again, I'm going to ask you to think um, and, and, and sort of put your history goggles on for a second and think back. So... Fairly early in the company's tenure, you got an attractive offer. Um, you, you said your margins were, were much better in the early days. Mm -hmm. And then years later, though the revenue had grown, the margins had gotten compressed. Mm -hmm. Have you ever wondered, should I have taken the first offer when you were at six to eight and avoided the mental turmoil of, of having to be ground yeah. down by the implement. You know what I'm asking? I know what you're asking. And it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a ridiculous question because you can't go back. And <laughs> Thanks. Think, I'm really right? good at those. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's like, Oh, if I could have, would have, well, well, I didn't. Right. <laughs> so like, here we are. So if I thought about it too long, I would drive myself crazy. I would be like a dog with a bone. And I'd be some old miserable guy being resentful for like, yeah, I could have been a contender. Who cares? <laughs> right? My life yeah. is beautiful right now. Every, everything worked out perfectly. It always does. Yeah. And, and I, I get that sense for sure. The reason I asked the question was more for the benefit of the listener. Because I think a lot of listeners, given how frothy the M&A market is right now, sure. are getting offers way before they think they're ready to sell, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're getting unsolicited, you know, people are coming up to them saying, and, and oftentimes offering really, really solid packages. And they're like, well, I was 
thinking of selling years into the future, but maybe I should. And, yeah. and, and so that's where a question was, was more to serve them. Than- so it's a, that's a great question from that angle. Um, I would say, you know, better a bird in the hand than two in the bush, right? So if you get an attractive offer right now, um, you, it's kind of like a Vegas thing, right? You're winning, things are going good, you know, there's cocktails flying around, you're, you're making money at the table. Um, but if you stay too long, you know, you could lose it all too, right? Um, mm-hmm. So if it's going good and somebody throws a pile of money at you, um, yeah, definitely consider it. Uh, don't, be, don't be too set in your, um, you, like you have to have a certain time frame. I have, oh, I have to run this business for 10 years before I can sell it. And that's, yeah. that, and that's the, the work that I do with clients now in terms of the entrepreneurs that I coach as, you know, what do you really want? Because it's, it's about fulfillment too. It's not, you know, you talked about having a job. Sometimes as an entrepreneur, we can treat it like a job, like we signed up for 25 years to do this thing. Well, maybe you don't need to be there 25 years. Maybe if somebody throws a bunch of money at you, um, you can exit and go do something else. Yeah, I'm glad you raised throwing a bunch of money at you because it, I've just written down your age and the stage of, of, of life that your kids were in. What was it like to all of a sudden be liquid? at 42 that's a pretty young age to be you know like we don't need to know the number but you know like there were some significant numbers at play here and and i'm imagining it it i could have been you know relatively well i won't put words in your mouth what was it like to be 42 and liquid um um (laughs) the easy one would be interesting what was it like um disconcerting um um, discombobulated, right? A little bit, right? Because it's like, oh, wait, wait. yeah, right. It's like, wow, this is kind of weird. I don't, you know, I thought who I am and my identity was as a swashbuckling entrepreneur, and you're going in and you're moving and shaking every day, and you're making stuff happen. You know, there's all kinds of deals going on, um, and then all of a sudden you exit, and you're like, oh, there's there's kind of quiet here. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, and I spent, you know, I spent about 18 months. Thankfully, I didn't try and play golf full time, um, you know, but I did some, I did some things for a little bit, 18 months. I did some real estate development, um, stuff like that, where you, you made a bunch of money, lost a bunch of money and, you know, everything in between, but it was boring, right? Um, so there's one side of it. The other side was, it was kind of nice to know, all right, there's money in the bank now and we don't have to stress, right? So the pressure was off. Um, but then it had to be about replacing it with some other sense of purpose sooner rather than later. And I probably well, we, jumped, yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I probably jumped into a couple of things too early after that. Um, more like kind of angel investing stuff that didn't really work out. And why it didn't work out was I just jumped in too early. I had this thing about, um, all right, well, I'm an entrepreneur. I make things happen. You know, this is just how I am. Um, and I, in hindsight, I would probably have taken a little bit longer to just look around and see what I was really interested in versus, you know, what seemed like a good idea. It reminds me of a tweet I saw recently. I can't give attribution because I can't remember who it was from, but but the tweet was, what's what's the best way to make $10 million as, a, no, I mean, sorry, what's the best way to make a million dollars as an angel investor? And the uh, the punchline was, we'll start with 10 million. <laughs> start with 10, exactly. <laughs> Basically the, the gist of it. Yeah, it's, uh, exactly. it's a common refrain for sure. 
uh, especially uh, when you're young to get that kind of money, you feel like, you know, you've got a lot of a runway left to go. Yeah, and, yeah lots of lots yeah. to go. Well, here's the deal that yeah. I sold that when I was 42 and I'm 57 now. And I'm literally just as excited, if not more, about the future going forward. And I'm 15, that's some 15 years removed from that. That's wild. I, I mean, it sounds like your wife was a, a huge part of the business in the very first yeah. five years. What was it like in the final chapter when you know you're negotiating back and forth with the ultimate acquirer? Mm-hmm. What were the dinner table conversations like with your wife at that time? Boy, what a what a good question. Um, Janine, ultimately, like every single time I would bring back and I'd go, okay, they said this, what about this? This is what the offer is, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Um, she would literally just look at me and go, I don't care whatever you want to make you happy. And Because at that point, we had money in the bank anyway. Um, so it was nice to have gotten our job done to the whatever's going to make you happy and whatever's going to make you fulfilled. Let's do that. So keep it, sell it, I don't care. And it wasn't she didn't care because she was disinterested. Um, it was literally like, what's going to make you happy? What's going to make you fulfilled? That's incredible. Yeah. She, she's an incredible woman. I'm happy to be still married to her. <laughs> That's great. I think we could all take some, some life lessons from you as well as some business lessons. Tell, tell, tell us where, uh, where, where people can find you, what you're up to. Is there a website people can go to? Just give us a sense of... Uh, Yep, super easy. Um, it's waldronleadership.com. Um, I'm in Northern California. Um, really easy to find. I'm right on the web. Don't do it awesome. on social media, but go to the website, you'll find me. Waldron Leadership. We'll put that in the show notes at Built to Sell Radio. Kevin, this was a real treat for me. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.